Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Red Couch Theology Podcast. This week, we're continuing our series called Ordinary Time. And we're going to be talking about what do you do when you encounter a passage of Scripture where there's just too much debate about what the interpretation should be? How do we approach texts like this? And how do we have confidence that our interpretation is accurate? Or does it need to be? These are the kind of questions we're going to address today on the episode. And without any further ado, let's just dive right in. Lauren, I, I love that you two have got delightful lights over your head in the camera shot. It's oh, just like, it's, it's well, very, very Halo-esque. <laughs> hello, everyone. You know, it's like those halos that you have like in those old, old like paintings where they're like a saint. Yeah. The yeah. saint halo. Uh-huh. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> What do you think? I, they were just sitting in here from an interview, and I was like, I'm just going to throw those behind us. Specifically, actually behind you, not just like in the background, but like well, right yeah. over your head. <laughs> yeah, it's not the best work I've ever done. <laughs> but you weren't supposed to be in the shot. That's Oh, I wasn't. Yeah. I've been ki- just for those of you that You listen, totally messed up I've our I've been visual. kicked out of the podcast that I helped to start. These yeah. guys are just running with it now. I love it. This is how great things start. You just just kick out people. You're on the off. pathetic microphone. You're sitting in the third seat like over in the here. corner of the couch. We split you down the middle. Although, well, hello, everyone. Yeah, hello. <laughs> We're uh, welcome to another episode of the Red Couch Theology Podcast, and our fearless leader has come back. Every time. And Jake, he doesn't Jake. want to deal with sleepy children, jet lag children. So he actually <laughs> came to work today. <laughs> Jake, Jake. Uh... Jake Goslin messaged me and said, are you back from sabbatical yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens if you go away for more than uh, two weeks in America. Yeah, like, that, this is sabbatical. Yeah, he's like, when Alex actually takes a sabbatical, it's going to be like a year and a half. So. <laughs> a year is traditional. Yeah. yeah. You have to write a book, though. When I, when I was on sabbatical, my neighbor would always go, how's your book going? And I was like, Dang it. If, I can, if I can take a year, I'll write a book. Yeah. <laughs> Might not be any good, but it'll be bad. Well, we're um, we're diving into another episode here in our ordinary time series, and I'm actually the, I preached on Sunday, so yeah. I'm not going to start the rest of the conversation. Yeah, I'm that's. I was wondering. Yeah, I'm going to cool. pass it off to Jessica. I think that'd be great because she actually planned something. I think maybe. Yeah, loosely. Loosely. <laughs> uh, we have one question, but we also have oh, yeah. a question someone sent into the podcast. So let's tackle that really quick first. Yes, and I'm not going to put it on the screen because my Slack is not working properly. But the basic premise of the question was, hey, when are we going to hear about women in ministry? Uh, why haven't we heard anything new? And when do they decide? And mm-hmm. the answer to that question is, we don't know. Yeah, and, and, and I think there are still ongoing listening forums. Those go into August if you haven't had a chance to, to come. Just share your thoughts. They are really great environments. Having been in in a couple myself, they're they're just they're very accepting of different views, and it's just a chance to say this is how this subject has affected me. This is how I see it theologically. This is how I see it ecclesiologically. Um, so to, so take a chance to do that in August if you haven't. Yeah. Um, there are, f- I think, four more yeah. on the schedule that you can register for now. Four yeah. or five. Yeah, there's yeah. a few, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so I, I think that when will they make a decision part to the question is this process all, all along has been about listening to what God has for us. Um, and, and that becomes a challenge as we wrestle with, with scripture, as we wrestle with the, the, the many wonderful writers on both sides of this conversation. Um, 
and how they've interpreted different passages of scripture. The, then we wrestle with the church's history, who South is as a community, all those different things. And and so I think there's going to be a, a little bit of little bit of um, a journey ahead of us. I, I, if you're expecting a decision on August 31st, I, I would say that's probably not a reality. Um, yeah, because I think there's still some work to go, but we'll try and keep you updated. And and I'm not even sure that the person who wrote this question will ever hear our answer because. This week, somehow, when they imported my slides, they moved them from down below and up to top. It got the Red Couch Theology podcast slide in the wrong spot. It put it all the way at the bottom. So I didn't actually put the question, like, I didn't preamble Red Couch Theology. I just had one slide with the phone number at the bottom, questions, and then the phone number. So they texted in the question. Ah! They yeah. might not even be podcast listeners yeah. or anything. So there you go. Um, so if anyone comes to you and says, uh, when are they going to talk about this more? There you go. You can you can be the messengers. You can go take yeah, it. Yeah, you can spread the word. Sharing, that yeah. There is no yeah. news. Yeah. So. Not yet. Well, the, the news is there's more listening forums. Yeah. So keep, listen, keep, keep forming. Um, and I don't think we had any other questions no, I think that was it. for my sermon, partially because I didn't announce it. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's how that works. So... Well, speaking of wrestling with scripture, um, we'll just stay away from that. Um, text can be difficult in the Bible because there's a lot of different ways to interpret them potentially. Uh, and they can be difficult because of the subject matter that they actually talk about, especially when it's something dealing with violence. And you chose a text that is difficult for both reasons because <laughs> it talks about violence, a difficult subject matter, and there, as you found, are a lot of potential things that could be happening in that text. Yeah. So, uh, which do we want to talk about first? What do we do with hard subject matter, or how do we pick an interpretation? Uh, yeah. Well, I first of all, I can tell you why this text was selected. One, it's part of the lectionary, so that's that's the, <laughs> that's such a cop out answer it because narrowed, the list, it, it narrowed the list significantly yeah. for me from the entire bible down to like five passages do you remember what the other passages were just out of interest uh it was the next the section um in matthew prior to or the i'm i referenced maybe it was the second half of matthew 10 i believe the disciples yes psalm yeah. Psalm 13, which is like, why have you abandoned me? You know, mm -hmm. how long, O oh Lord? Um, <laughs> Many of the Psalms are that, to be fair. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a lament Psalm. And then um, it's a later Psalm in Jeremiah, or a later uh -huh. section in Jeremiah, chapter like 21 yeah. or something yeah, like yeah. that. But the Psalm and the Jeremiah passage felt very similar points as I'd preached the previous yeah, week. Yeah. And uh, this whole, like, crying out to God, d taking our emotional state And it should have been God. a Romans passage, maybe, as well? Like this... And then Romans chapter 6, six yeah. um, was the other option. But I knew you were going to be in Romans some, so yeah. I was like... So I actually asked a few people, which one should I, which one should I choose, you know, help me pick? And uh, Jake actually said, you, you know, actually the Genesis text, that's like... A really great story and i was like i don't know i don't know if i want to preach that one it's probably it feels too easy like i'm a glutton for punishment i want yeah, something that yeah, i haven't studied or yeah. haven't heard a sermon on and i was like yeah i don't know i've heard it preached and i kind of know where i'd go with it but that's the i mean i think i preached this passage at south yeah but i think 
one, we realize people's memory for what has been preached is not always you know, right. as, as broad as we might hope as a preacher. So like, wait, I preached on that two and a half years ago. And totally. Like, yeah. That text mine. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I as I, as I was reading through the passage and stuff, I was like, yeah, you know, this is the only one that didn't feel like it was like directly hitting a subject mm. that we were we're not going to cover in another section. So I was like, all right, well, I'll kind of dust it off and see what, and then I started studying. I was like, uh, this is not an easy passage at all. No, no, it's no, like an ex no. one of the most hotly contested texts in rabbinic thought and in Protestant well, commentators. And that's partly because uh, I, I would guess uh, in terms of our feelings about this text, if this text is an ask that God's, God makes that goes through to completion, it's a horrific text. Yeah. Like, it, it's it, very... It's actually high. kind of brutal either way. Right. There are a lot of people who say, no, it's a horrific text regardless. Just yes. the fact that the ask got made, period, yeah. makes it a horrific text but, and makes God a questionable God. Yeah, but there's at least a little bit of a loophole or a loop out of the, the struggle if you get to the point of saying... God knew all along what he was going to do, and yes, there's some. Uh, I, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure trauma of a, a father binding a son up, and yeah, Soren Kierkegaard disagrees with you. There's no out. Like he just thinks this is ridiculous, no matter which way you slice it. Like he was so frustrated. I don't know if I believe that. Me and Soren Kierkegaard have never disagreed on anything before. Really? Uh, well, maybe this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. So I waded into this, and I think I did more study in this chapter than I have in a long time for a sermon because. There was just everybody disagreed. And you deep dive on stuff. You're you're a bit of a well, I, submarine. I, I do, but I wasn't expecting it in this mm. text. And yeah, so I spent most of my sermon prep just trying to decide what to do with the text. Mm -hmm. And then like this much time actually preparing a presentation of it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's a challenging one. So to go back to your questions, um, it was twofold, right? It's like, uh, what do we do with the sort of child sacrifice piece of this right. or right. how you interpret a, a contested text. Right. Cause I mean, you, like you were saying, everyone disagreed. There were probably for every piece of what was happening, a bunch of different options that you could choose to follow. Maybe some of them overlapped. Maybe some of them didn't. Um, I'm finding that in the study that I'm doing for the passage that I preach on Sunday, there's eight options for what could be happening in this one image how do you mm -hmm. how do you make a decision and move forward with humility and or confidence mm. um and mm. also not probably not just what do we do with child sacrifice in this particular text but it's not like this is the only text in the bible that people point to that and go i don't know if i like what's happening here like yeah. joshua other things that happen in the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. um, right. every, most of the Book of Judges, like things that happen all throughout the history books. I have an amazing book called Texts of Terror. Yeah. Um, which just goes through. It's an it's, amazing book, huh? It, it is an amazing book. Phyllis Tribble, if I remember oh, right. Oh, yeah. that's a great um, author. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, she just, I mean. Triple she, or Tickle? There's two. There's Phyllis Tickle, who is great. She writes a lot on the spirit and part of the emerging church movement, lived on a farm out in Virginia and just occasionally would just grace us with genius. And then Phyllis Tribble, who goes into a little more sexual ethics uh, in that area. 
And so she wrote texts of terror around uh, the, the rape of Tama is in one of those chapters. The mm. Genesis flood mm-hmm. is in a chapter. I, I, I would guess this might have come up. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but she picks out five or six key texts of terror, as she would term them, mm-hmm. and really just goes, mm. well, what do we say about this? Um, yeah, how do we bring this? Especially because from her perspective, a lot of those texts um, have women as the victims of right. of what she would say was some kind of patriarchy or something like that. Um, totally. So it, it, there's a lot of wrestling there on, on all sorts of different levels. Uh, on this one, you may look at the, the powerlessness of the mother in, in the text. You might look at the... Uh, the powerlessness of the child in the text. There's all those different angles and they tend to emerge. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. So as you wade into the text, like as well, one to reiterate what I said on Sunday, I think one of the pressure release valves for some of the tension in this text is like Hebrew literature is more comfortable with ambiguity than most Western minded people. are. (laughs) So, (laughs) Because including myself not, yeah, because we're not comfortable at all with ambiguity. no yeah we just want tell us what's right tell us what's wrong and and like i said on sunday for a rabbi like that isn't teaching telling people this is good this is bad do this don't do this this is the truth this is the this is not truth that's not teaching in a rabbi's mind and it's a very hebrew way of approaching things where you want people to understand and and dive deep into so the way they do that is they create intentional tension so um you know this is my answer to soren kierkegaard yes he was a product of his generation who wrestled with this and many theologians prior and since especially post kierkegaard have wrestled with this because we see this tension and the hebrew author is probably like great i'm glad you're really wrestling with this like that's the point so Mm -hmm. Maybe that tension isn't a bad thing. Maybe it's supposed to mess with our heads. So I I said that on Sunday, but that tension does create this like shattering of interpretation into so many different directions, which is a little bit scary when it comes to interpreting scriptures and how do we then take this text and apply it to our lives um, when we have less and less confidence that we know what the original author was intending to communicate, what they were trying to teach us about things and stuff like that. So yeah, it is, it's a tricky, and I don't know if you want to hear some of the wild interpretations of this. Um, Let's hear the wild interp. Well, I think let's hear the wild. Yeah. 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 So um, a couple of them I was talking. We can do a couple. Yeah. Yeah, A couple of them. Pick your favorite three. (laughs) Favorite. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I, I was telling Jessica about this one. So, in my sermon, I talked about, and I didn't even get a chance to like expound upon this hardly at all, but chapter 21, the Hagar, the like banishment of Hagar and Ishmael, and this chapter are completely intertwined structurally. There's word cues, there's um, uh, structural cues, there's all this stuff. It's like, that's probably the most widely acknowledged by commentators, both Protestant and rabbinic commentators all agree that there's this connection. So one of the ways that they, one one of the takes on that is Hagar in her, in that story, she's sent out, they place the supplies on her. She's sent out into the wilderness and then she lays her child under a bush and then goes a bow shot away. And then um, God shows up or an angel from heaven shows up. A lot of people think that's uh, a representative of God Mm -hmm. and says, 
I heard the cry of your child, which actually is this deeply interwoven term throughout all of the Pentateuch for, for acknowledging the oppressed. For example, when Sodom and Gomorrah are, are, when God's talking to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, I heard the cry. It's the same thing. Or when uh, Abel is killed in the Cain and Abel story, I heard the blood of Abel cry. So it's a way of the author saying, here's oppression and it's a bad thing. And so one of the interpretations is that this is a compare and contrast between how Hagar deals with this situation versus how Abraham deals with the situation. Hagar abandons the child in a moment of need. And Abraham, even though he's the one kind of going to be about, I don't know, Abraham trusts God and stays. And so his statement when his son says, father, or literally more daddy, where's the lamb for the sacrifice Abraham's response is, I'm here with you. Um, in other words, I'm sticking with you through the process. I don't know what's going to happen. This is terrifying, but I'm I'm with you through the whole thing. Okay, so there's that interpretation. Um, and some people say that's why these two are together. Mm. Others would say another angle on it is just to show, okay, that Abraham had to sacrifice both the child of his, of his effort and the child of promise. Mm -hmm. um, and though these were both unique ways that he had to surrender to God's plan versus his own. Um, a few more like, so there's a mid a few midrash teachings from the rabbis that are, what's a midrash. Yeah. I was about to explain. So midrash is a very interesting commentary style that a rabbi would use. They would usually embellish a story or make up a completely fake story with the same characters of a biblical text and add interesting little color and flavor context and emotional background and then tell this to their, their students. And it was a way of them unearthing observations that they've made in the text without telling them directly. So sometimes to, to deal with the difficulty of the text itself. I think we used one maybe five or six weeks ago around the uh, escape for the Exodus from Egypt. There's the, the moment where the Egyptian army is wiped out in the flood. And in one of the, the Midrash uh, writings on, on that subject, while all the Israelites are celebrating the angels in heaven celebrate too. And God says to the angels, well, they, they celebrate the death of humans because they're human. How can you, being divine beings, not see that my heart weeps for the Egyptians? Uh, and again, it's, it's a, it's a, whether it's a, a loophole out of a, uh, a problematic text or a, a rereading or a tweak on a problematic text, it, it allows a reader to say, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that aspect. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, well, there's so the two most um, uh, pro uh, the prominent Midrash well, one more thing on Midrash. It is not commentary. It is highly interpretive yeah. narrative storytelling. So to say that a rabbi was teaching this about the passage would be false. Like they aren't saying that this is this is the actually what's going on. It was their way of kind of uh, leading the witness. So would you say it would, I mean... Because it would seem to me it, it is teaching on the passage. It's not teaching how to interpret the passage. Actually, more on the interpretation side of things, but less that it was true. Yeah. 
They're not concerned about whether their story about this is true. Yes. For example, in this passage, one of the Midrash teachings is that Isaac actually does get killed. And then he does rise again on the third day prior. And this is a Midrash teaching, I think, that precedes the resurrection of Jesus. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the interpretations is that he, he that Abraham, one of his faith steps is he actually follows through with this action. And that truly. So that's one. That one's kind of fallen out of favor amongst rabbis as a as a useful tool. The one that blew my mind is. uh the one that says that Isaac is actually, even though he kind of knows what's going on at the moment itself, he doesn't get killed, but he's so traumatized that he actually leaves and he doesn't come down the mountain. And if you look and it's a way of a rabbi acknowledging a few interesting textual clues. So if you look at the story, um, text on screen, Oh, we're going to do this. No, that's not going to work. There we go. Of course, I'm going to get all of this stuff all messy and confusing. So uh, fire and wood are here. Abraham goes up on the mountain. He uh, he calls out. Let me see. If, uh, angel of the Lord comes down. Then Abraham returns to his servants. And they set off together for Beersheba. So all throughout the story, it's Isaac and Abraham are as one. They even use the language as, as all, from Genesis yeah. where the man and woman shall be as one. And all throughout the story, it's like they're together, they're together, they're together, they're together. Abraham returns to his servants and they set off from Beersheba. And then later on in a later chapter, we find out that Isaac isn't living in the same land as his father. Yeah. And so Isaac's off in the same area that Hagar has just deposited. So Midrash teaching mm -hmm. is that that um, potentially what's going on here is he's so traumatized by the situation that he runs away from his father and goes to live with Hagar and, and his half-brother. Mm -hmm. And that then a later story of Abraham seeking a, or a, a wife for is like his last ditch effort to try and restore relationship and reestablished a family line. Mm. And so it's a rabbi's way of saying, what's up with this, him not going down the mountain? Why is he living over here? So he just tells this embellished story. And then he's hoping that that story will help his students notice this strange uh, exclusion of Isaac in, in the story. Wild. So what do you do with that? Like, yeah, fascinating. Anyway, and again, all, all a little easier if you're not trying to land on this is the correct interpretation of this text. Uh, totally. Which sometimes can be difficult to, to feel permission to do as a, as a preacher. It can feel difficult to land on. I'm not going to give you uh, the exact interpretation. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah. It, it's it is challenging <laughs> to let go of that. Uh, I know it was challenging for me because I wanted to at least have some confidence in how I was saying this is what this text has for us as a community this week. And uh, the more I studied, the less confident I was that I was going to land on the quote unquote right one, um, even with all of my attempts to say what was authorial intent. Mm -hmm. So what happens if authorial intent is ambiguity? Mm -hmm. That's what the what I landed on is like I think that this is all intentional. Yeah. That the original author 
gave us enough to mess with us enough to sort of linger and wrestle with the heart of God and the heart of Abraham and try and figure out why did God think this guy was such an amazing character in the storyline so and i think it's the challenge is is partly that our modern understanding of historical account it, it almost always begins with is this true like, like almost like is this true and is it chronological mm-hmm. uh, are our two like prerequisites for for a piece of history right the, the moment we lose one of the or, or the moment one of those two might not be the point is really difficult for us to handle. Yes. Yep. And the more you study Hebrew scriptures, it's it gets harder and harder to not real to not acknowledge that this was a very calculated for the purpose of teaching written text. Um and it's it's way less concerned with chronology, with science, with whether the story happened exactly in this that way, even, um, yeah, that that gets scary. So, you said you've got some challenges in the text coming up. How have you yeah. like wrestled through that? Like, how does to land on something that gives you some sense of confidence? Great. Well, um, my task is a little bit easier because it's no, just no, like, not too many spoilers, but right. It's just <laughs> one image, really, that I'm okay really coming up with oh there's i've read six commentaries in a bible dictionary and like church to horse study and there's like eight different interpretations of like mm. what could be happening and like probably there's like two or three things that jesus is doing with this mm-hmm. um but like you read one author and they're saying well clearly like this is what is happening here he's using this image and then the next guy goes well well, obviously, it's not that interpretation. Like, that's a really bad way <laughs> to interpret the text. It's this. Part of the challenge of writing commentaries, and I, I don't know about the seminary experience over, over here, but for us, at least studying in England. In the enlightened land. We, we would have to write something like a commentary piece on a specific text. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can't, as a as a person writing a new commentary, say something like, yeah, I basically think Ian Proven is right about everything on this. And so that's my entry for the commentary. Like, yeah, it has to, you have to wrestle and have to push. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember Raymond, Raymond Brown's. Um, it's a recipe for creating very divergent. It has to. Yeah. Right. Raymond Brown in his book on John said, if you, if you can take 60% of what I say, I'd be delighted. I mean, that, that was his like baseline. Like, Wow. Like I'm pushing the bar out. I'm I'm pushing into different thoughts and wrestling with mm-hmm. which retrospectively, when we look back, we see the gift that is to the church to do it in real time can make you feel at times almost like, am I kind of some kind of heretic here? Right. Um, you yeah. know, is, is this allowed? Uh, I feel like I'm pushing the walls that surround us down, even if I'm not running very far from, from an orthodox position. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's some emotional challenges there for the person writing the sermon. Right. And totally. I mean, for me, like the conclusion that I've come to is like, it matters, but also all of these possible interpretations are really pointing towards like discipleship and what does it mean to follow Jesus? Mm. So in the end, it doesn't totally matter which one I pick and if I'm wrong, cause they're, they're all kind of making the same point, regardless of the path that you're trying to take to get there. But also, I think it's a little bit of an active. I think preaching, if done 
uh, well on the preacher's part is always going to be an act of faith mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not totally uh, being heretical and destroying the text and that God will do something with it, even if it feels like you're just sermon is a disaster and you're just throwing things at people and like mm. hoping that god will <laughs> yeah. pick up the crumbs yeah how now we built up all your confidence in our preaching now you're like right. who knows what they're actually doing so um <laughs> we apologize for that but yeah I, absolutely it's like so my conclusion was similar we know with a lot of confidence that the scriptures interpret this story Already, the New yeah. Testament interprets this story. So I, I jumped to Romans chapter four um, and said, like, clearly the scriptures in the New Testament believes that Abraham is the father of faith and that this story is part of the reason. And then uh, I think it's in Hebrews also references it. And yeah. and so it's um, I had confidence that that had to be part of the destination to just paint like uh to just paint Abraham out as like either perfect in this situation or as the complete idiot in the story, which is some of the interpretations say Abraham did everything wrong in this story. And I just couldn't go there because the new Testament kind of, it's the cheat code. It's like, this is how the new Testament uh, authors uh, acknowledge the story. So I, I concluded that one, this story has to be teaching us about, uh, some sort of model of tremendous faith. So mm. the question I asked at the end was, did Abraham pass the test? Mm-hmm. The text tells us he's being tested, which yeah. is a very common sort of uh, thing in the Pentateuch. There's these tests. God tests all sorts of different characters throughout these throughout the Pentateuch, and he tests the people of Israel and how they're going to deal with this situation and this situation, this situation. And sometimes they pass. Most of the time they don't. Do you think... Do you think um... I'm just conscious that for us as as people in the West, we have very much this like pass fail idea of a test. Yes, that's not the complete story, right? With the mm-hmm. idea of test in terms of uh, of ancient writings, in terms of scriptural faith. So, so like we we instantly, I, I think, go to, hey, did you pass this with an A? Did you pass this with a B? Did you pass this with a C? Like, did you fail this completely? Like, was there a retake? All those different elements. Um, so when, when scripture says something like test, like what would it mean? How could we help people unpack that idea a little bit more rather than just a pass fail idea? Yeah. Well, there's this weird reality that God seems to indicate that he wants to discover what's in the heart of Abraham, Mm -hmm. which for us is like, well, can't, doesn't he already know? Doesn't he know everything? And so that, that by itself is really confusing. Mm -hmm. But then there's also an element of God wanting to show the person being tested their own heart and their own willingness to follow. So um, it's more it's more about like what I said in the message was like this is an object lesson. This is about him teaching. So Mm. even a, a really good teacher you don't just test. Well, maybe, maybe in the modern school system, you test because the government forces you yes. forces you to yeah, test. Yeah. But if you're a good teacher, the goal of the test is to reveal the knowledge and the the um, internalization of the mm-hmm. content, mm-hmm. and both to reveal that to the 
professor and to the student and to find the gaps in knowledge. So you, you, you're actually helping them grow in the process, right? I, I... It's supposed to be. It has a destination yeah. in mind. And that's where I ended up with the message is I think he he shows evidence, and we know from the New Testament, that he passed, quote-unquote, passed the test. Mm. But I think he still discovered, by the end of the narrative, he discovered something about God's heart mm -hmm. that he didn't know as the narrative was unfolding, and w which was maybe that he was supposed to speak up on behalf of his son yeah, and, earlier and, in the and narrative. God seems to have, like, long game in mind uh, in a lot of these texts, and, and we tend to be very much like, oh, oh, the, the the keys in the pass fail and, yeah. and, and yeah. God's development of us. And, and I think you're right that we see that as in good teaching. There's this, there's this long game in mind. I, I remember a professor I had when I was writing first year papers said to me, um, I'm not interested in your opinion. Like, I want you to show me that you can research and find out what people think. Like, so that's your goal. Like give, give me the voices of experts. When you get to third year, I'm more interested in your opinion. You, you've started to show me that you you have the ability to to know the background and to then give an opinion. But right now, like this is where you're at. And again, brilliant in terms of his long game process for me. And I think there's that beautiful idea to God's testing across scripture. It's testing is with growth in mind. Um, totally. It brings you to... to and that's, that's actually why, I, I, didn't give, I didn't explain explicitly, why did I start the sermon with a first-person dramatic monologue mm -hmm. from chapter 12 through 21? And the reason was I wanted to e semi-efficiently within about a 30-second to one-minute spot on all these little like snapshots into Abraham's life and the progression of his knowledge of the heart of God and the way that God operated mm -hmm. and build to this place where this text, you should see this momentum of Abraham's knowledge of God's heart and knowledge of God's plan. And then we should start cluing in on, is he on track or not? Is he, uh, you know, how's his education unfolding as it were. Mm -hmm. And so then when we dive into this text um, and you get all these like really subtle context cues of, of, connected to the fall of man which oh so if you're asked if you're wondering what that interpretation is um if you weren't in the sermon i i landed on i think that uh richard middleton wrote a book called abraham's silence and i think it's very compelling to me i think he ha is spot on and i haven't finished it but it i just found too many contextual clues to not see some connection there that there's these tie back ties back to taking of the fruit and that maybe Abraham should have been sort of cluing on, obviously. Yeah. Uh, at least the later readers should be cluing into don't take the fruit. Don't take the fruit. It's going to turn out badly if you take the fruit. Right. <laughs> and that we should be getting the clue that Abraham should have said, hold up, God, what's going on here? This isn't like you. You don't normally do this kind of thing. And he's like, exactly. That's exactly what I want you to learn is that I am not, all the commentators seem to, to get to that destination through roundabout ways that God's trying to teach Abraham that he's not like the Canaanite gods. Um, I just think that maybe Abraham should have been catching on quicker and that at least the later readers of this text um, 
were are supposed to be queuing in and they should jump to that conclusion before they hear the punchline yeah it's, it's a little bit like what are you doing abraham like, come on like, yeah you know. like don't take the fruit like yeah. why are you taking the fruit um exactly and so i think huge faith he trusted that god could resurrect his son he trusted that god would provide a lamb mm -hmm. totally great faith but he should have said wait a second god what, Your heart's not like this. One of, I think, my almost universal experiences of followers of Jesus in the 21st century in the West in different different contexts has been they they are very aware of, you know, Paul phrases it as seeing through a glass darkly mm -hmm. as a personal experience now. And they read Old Testament texts and seem to believe that the glass was clearer then than it is now. So, so they read back to God <laughs> speaking to Abraham and, and, and picture uh, a, or, or, or auditorily picture a booming voice out the sky that says, Abraham, go and sacrifice your son in this Charlton Heston style voice. That's too, too clear to miss. And so they almost feel like our ability to hear God has weakened mm -hmm. in the, in the, 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 the Jesus era that we live in um than it the in comparison to what it was in the old testament and, and so we get to read back and, and and we understand abraham must have had a whole bunch of questions circling in his head uh, as he's walking towards this destination one of which must have been did god really say this to me um but again to us to a lot of christians they read back and like yes when it says god said to abraham go sacrifice your son yeah, there's almost too much clarity. In our yeah. Feedback. So one of the uh, textual observations is that it takes Abraham three days. Right mm -hmm. now, some interpreters say that Abraham's dragging his feet and he's trying to give God a chance to get to change his mind because mm -hmm. he doesn't think that it's God, God's intention to sacrifice. And we know that even contextually, he says, he says, yeah, God's going to provide the lamb. Um, so he, and, and from the new Testament, we know that that's his, what's going on in his head. We get a snapshot of his internal monologue, but he's like going the long way. Like, really? <laughs> do you, do you want to change? Do you want to tell me any more information? That's one interpretation. Others say that it's, um, because in the beginning of the story, God says, go to a land, uh, I will show you. He's wandering around waiting for God to tell him where he's right. And for the same, that this one's more in line with um, Abraham's silence, the book that I mentioned. It's God trying to give Abraham time to rebel mm -hmm. and say, wait a second, this doesn't sound like you. Yeah. So he's like, are you going to get it? Are you going to get it? Are you going to get it? And he gets all, no, he's like, I'm going up the mountain. I'm grabbing the knife. He's like, fine, stop. Like, <laughs> you missed the boat. You had your chance. I gave you three days to cry out on behalf of your son. Mm like you did with Sodom and Gomorrah, mm -hmm. and you didn't do it. Mm. It's super fascinating. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So did we answer all the questions? I don't know, that you asked me in the beginning? Um, I mean, well, we have time. <laughs> so I think we can press into, um, a little bit more of just how, how do we deal with the text that we're not comfortable with, especially in the Old Testament. And Alex, I think what you said about our assumption that, oh, well, obviously, everything in the Old Testament, like, mm. they they clearly are doing 
what God has instructed. They heard correctly. They're doing exactly what they were told. And therefore, like, that, it seems like that's where we get the, well, Old Testament God versus New Testament Jesus pitting them mm. against each other when the whole picture of scripture is that one, it's one God. Um, and that we're not supposed to make this distinction of, oh, well, like, God got nicer now. He chilled out in the New Testament, and therefore, like, yeah. we can be okay with him. But, like, yeah. wow, he really had some problems yeah, like, yeah, at the yeah, beginning yeah. of time or He took whatever. some anxiety medicine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, like, just chilled went, out a little bit. Got went to therapy, and therefore, yeah. we can be okay with him. Yeah. Um, that's not the picture of God that we're given, but we still have to wrestle with the fact that, yeah, there's some really hard, even in the New Testament, they're, like, we're having these conversations about women on the other board. Yeah. There are interpretations that are, if they're correct, they're really hard to figure out how that fits. So how, I guess, how do we, as people who believe that scripture is authoritative, inspired, not something that we should just pick and choose. Like, we're just going to rip out this chapter like Thomas Jefferson slice mm-hmm. out these little yeah, yeah, verses yeah, yeah. that like make me uncomfortable. We we're supposed to take the full book. Yeah. What what do we do with things that yeah we would really rather they just weren't there? Mm. They got lost to time. Yeah, I quoted. I think it's Tim Mackey. I don't know if it's original to him. Probably isn't. But I quoted Tim Mackey about the nature of scripture on Sunday, where I said that the scriptures are meditative literature. And Did you just imply that most of Tim Mackey's stuff is an original? No, <laughs> no, no, I just don't. That's where I first heard it, but I don't know if he like it was a got joke. it from if someone Tim Mackey's listening, we'd love a follow. Uh, yes. We love Tim Mackey. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you would like to be on our show, we'll actually give you this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's all just, yours. As a gift. <laughs> like, Shut up. You'll do way better than we do. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. So he said that the scriptures are intended to be meditative literature, meaning we're supposed to saturate in it constantly. So one, I think one interpretive skill is to not assume that you've reached the depths of the text Mm -hmm. and to always have a little bit of healthy skepticism about your own interpretation, Mm -hmm. not about the authority of the scriptures, not about the intention of the scriptures, not about any of those things. That's not where skepticism should lie. The skepticism should lie in I'm coming from a context that is completely shaping and coloring my interpretation. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with certain interpretations. Mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable with others. And I am going to be, I am this trickiest element mm-hmm. when it comes to interpreting the text. And I think, I think that's one of the things that's been really helpful to me is to ask the question, uh, what is it in me that's causing me to react this way to the text mm-hmm. uh, that I've read? Um, totally. so, so a lot of the time, like it's, it's my own fear, perhaps, perhaps my fear that, that God isn't as good as I've been told he is. Perhaps my fear mm. that other people won't see him to be good, mm-hmm. um, because of what's there in, in the, the black and whiteness of the text. So, so there's usually something going on in me that's like, okay, yeah. And and that's true outside of the text. Like when I react a certain way in a conversation, I can usually look back and say, oh yeah, this is, this is, you know, this about you. Uh, this yeah. is this is this thing um this is a pattern this comes from this place it's like um, if i was god's pr agent i would t- cut out so many yeah. passages because yeah. i'm like you should have like 
at least run this by me, God, because you're it's making really yourself look really could bad. Could you right not now. just have said once <laughs> slavery is a really bad thing and nobody should do it? Like that would that, that would have just, just cleared us so up so much, much. Yeah, in, our, in our 21st yeah. century context. Um, so I think that, like, looking at the text and saying, yeah, there's, there's probably part of me that either doesn't want it to say something, um, and, and then being okay, being honest with that. I mean, quite regularly on Sundays, I'll say, yeah, I don't want this to be in the Bible. I, I would much rather that this wasn't an authoritative statement. I, I would much rather God said, yeah, if you like this, take it. But uh, and and so that part, I think, is is good for me at least to to surrender some of the me that I'm bringing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can just sense like some of the like people listening, they're like, yeah, so then how do we, but how do we know anything then? Yeah. So, so I think, I think the beautiful thing for me has been taking Jesus as a main interpretative key for, Amen. for any aspect of, of the text. So, so I think was it was it Brian Zahn that said something, and I'm sure it wasn't original to him either. Like, and we'll throw him it was under probably like, yeah, He probably was. Um, <laughs> God, God, God looks like Jesus. He's always looked like Jesus. He's never not looked like Jesus. Um, so if if Paul is right, and we we assume he is, that that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that we can look at his character and his way of dealing with people and say, uh, now this is what God looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, then then that's helpful to me, um, totally. and, and becomes like this baseline test of uh, of what's going on. Now, now even that for some people is hard. And 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 I love. I think one of my favorite things about the Bible as a whole piece of literature, containing lots of little pieces of literature, has been its ability to be self-referential, to be self-correcting. There's not many religious texts that would be comfortable with God saying an eye for an eye, and then later God saying, "No, you've heard this, but it's not accurate. I tell you this." Mm-hmm. Like that—that's a bold book of faith that can have that kind of well challenge. And I think it's one of the things that validates the text. Mm. The fact that it is such bad PR for God mm-hmm. in certain ways, if we interpret it and, and, and God's just like, yeah, you know what? I'm not freaking out yeah. about this. Mm-hmm. And I see you're freaking out about this story mm-hmm. that I left in the text. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really comfortable with that. Cause mm-hmm. I, I'm big enough to handle your freak out moment. And Keep on meditating, and mm-hmm. you'll get there eventually. I just think that, oh, man, what the wisdom and the confidence of God, like, we want to take all this stuff out. And I think that usually I get actually a little bit excited when I run into a passage where I'm like, I I struggle with this. Because usually if I linger there long enough, that's that's what comes alive to me and transforms me. If everything feels really, really comfy, um. I'm usually like I'm probably not getting this te- this text correct, so yeah. Hmm. Um, man, that's some deep stuff. Uh, and so, I, what I think one of the things I love encouraging people to do is is to is to just keep reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's so much there to just keep exploring it, and the richest times for me. Um, and I wish they were more frequent. And some some of the times it's it's time of life. Sometimes it's just the busyness of things. But the seasons where I've just been reading lots of scripture have actually just been wonderful. Even when it's the challenging passages, mm-hmm. um, and and the, the times that people have come to me and say, "What what is different about you at the moment?" And I'm like, "Scripture, it just works. It it, it is a 
an incredible spiritual practice to just to to allow to invade your day um Mm. and to not freak out when you come across something that that throws you to 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 do what abraham does in in one of your interpretations which is to stay with the stay with the horrific um and just keep processing is actually a place where god shows up time and time again Mm. um and to be comfortable with your I think the smallness of your own cultural moment. I think all of us are tempted to believe this cultural moment is permanent. And history tells us that no cultural moment is permanent. Yeah, totally. Um, so so to, to almost have like, to carry some humility into your sensibilities on the text um, and just say, yes, this is what I see and this is what I hold dear. And it feels right, but there has to be some perhaps to that um it has to be something yeah totally um well hopefully it's been helpful for you uh i'm sorry i didn't put the phone number up to ask questions because i'm sure you would have uh had more interesting questions than i thought of but yeah come on yeah gotta be better than that um (laughs) but so actually a little hint we are discussing doing a live evening recording of the red couch theology podcast and opening up to the community to attend uh, sometime in this fall. Um, but I would just be curious if you would be interested in something like that. Mm. So uh, if you want to hop on YouTube and in the comment section, let us know, would you be interested in showing up to a live recording of the Red Couch Theology podcast where we fielded questions from the audience uh, more fully? Uh, if you aren't interested, we might do it anyway, because let's be honest, you guys don't put comments. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You yeah. never comment on anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we did the podcast anyway, even though no one asked us. No to. one cared. Uh, <laughs> and so we just do stuff because we like it. No, anyway, no, I actually do want to know if you're if you're interested in that. Um, wow, if you if there ever was a way to convince you that your comments don't I matter. Need, <laughs> I, I need a PR agent because I'm doing a horrible job marketing this idea. The worrying uh, thing is Aaron really felt God told him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, what it is is I would like to record the podcast while drinking a cup of coffee in 6510. Absolutely. That's really delightful. the real thing. I love it. So. Anyway, we love y'all. Any other comments? No. Question? Confusion? <laughs> yeah. Lots of confusion. All right. Does anyone ever say yes when you say any other comments? Y- yeah. Alex does. He, he usually starts talking about the thing he actually wanted to say that I derailed him the whole time uh, with my stupid questions. Such an accurate. Uh, He's like, I really wish that you'd ask this question. And since you didn't, I will. It's like a politician's process of saying, this is the question I really wanted to answer. So I'm going to ask that instead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, See you next week. Well, thanks again for listening. And we hope that that was a helpful conversation for you. We'd love to interact with you about this. So feel free to leave comments, questions, all that sort of thing. And we'll try our best to get back to you when we can. Have a great day.